Hello and welcome. We are uh, back. I had promised you this is a good, it's going to be a good lesson for today. I had promised you a big announcement today, but not going to do that today, going to do that next week. So hold your excitement. Next week we'll have um, our, our big announcement and a special guest. So anyway, but today what we're going to do is go over lesson 12 uh, in our encounter quarter. Uh, it's for November 21, and the um, scripture lesson is going to be Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, and also John 8, 12. Uh, so I'm just going to get into this. Our prayer for illumination today. Living God, help us to so hear your word that we may truly understand, that understanding we may believe, and believing we may follow your way in all faithfulness, seeking your honor and glory in all that we do. Amen. And our memory verse for today is... Um, Isaiah 9, 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them the light, on them light has shined. So again, that's Isaiah 9, 2. All right, to jump into this, uh, Derek wants us to uh, uh, view the Bible Projects video on faithfulness, and I think that's really good. Man, I've had a lot of emails from Sunday school teachers or people in a Sunday school class that have just really thoroughly enjoyed being introduced to that resource. So um, don't know how much is going to be used in future uh, encounters. However, uh, there's just a boatload of information in that channel and they do a really great job. So I would encourage you to uh, use that in the future. Make sure if you can use it this week uh, and, and it will provide some discussion. The video is called Faithfulness. But it's not about our faithfulness. It's about God's faithfulness. And this lesson then is, the, is focused on God's faithfulness and not our faithfulness because we mess up quite a bit. Um, it also, we're going we're gonna to ultimately understand that the light which Isaiah is talking about is Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. And then we're going to go into the fact that we too are light, Jesus is the light of the world. And then in Matthew, he says, you are the light of the world. And so that's how we're going to go today is we're going to connect those, uh, those together. The discussion question, I think is good to set up this, um, discussion and it, uh, it's on page 69 discussion question in the introduction section. What is the difference between having hope and making a wish? How do we demonstrate hope within the church? Describe a situation you thought was hopeless only to see hope prevail. Okay, so I've thought about this, um, and, and I know this. Um, your hope is really only as good as the object that you hope in, or your belief in something is only as good as the object in which you uh, believe. So, for instance, I said, hey, last week, wait for this week, and I've got a great announcement for you. There were things outside of my control, and so, therefore, I didn't deliver you may have had hope that something was going to happen, but I didn't have, you had hope in me or faith or, or whatever in me that I was going to bring an announcement, but I didn't have the ability to bring that about. I, I didn't have it. Another way I thought about this is I'm a Vanderbilt fan, big football fan. Love it. Still do. We're terrible. There's been three years my entire life that they've had well, four years winning seasons. While I was growing up from around 1980 to 2008, really, we were terrible. No bowls, maybe 1982, I forgot. But anyway, I was two years old at the time. Every year I had hope that this would be the year. It's like a Cubs fan in baseball. Every year you have hope that something better is going to happen. Happen. 
So in this discussion question, what's the difference between having hope and making a wish? As a Vanderbilt fan, I knew the people that we had on our team weren't athletically as gifted as the other teams in the Southeastern Conference. I knew our coaches weren't as good as the other coaches in the Southeastern Conference. I knew our facilities, our practice fields, locker rooms, these kinds of things were lower or not as good as the other teams in the Southeastern Conference. So therefore, while I could hope that we would win, everything behind my hope led towards something different, like failure, right? So there's that. The object with which we have hope in really defines whether the hope is either a wish or, or it can be fulfilled. So in our scripture text and in our lives, we have faith in God's promises, not because and we know they're true and we can have hope and faith in them because of Jesus Christ. The life, death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees our hope in a sense, right? We have faith that God is going to follow through on God's promises because we have Jesus Christ. So in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul writes, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. So it's not as though we're attaching our hope or our faith into something that we can't we have no backing. Instead, we have faith in God's promises and God's faithfulness because of Jesus Christ, right? So that's a good discussion question and a good thing to think about. Uh, and then Derek asking, uh, how do we demonstrate hope within the church? And, and I think not to get, I mean, as difficult as it might sound, we demonstrate hope in the church because we show up for worship, this world is empty and it feels void, but a community that goes to worship God who has these promises that have been given in Jesus Christ and we worship on the gratitude of our hearts, knowing that one day things will be different. We are in a world that is weary of pandemic. We are weary of fighting. We're weary of politics. And so when we go to the church as a community to worship the king above, uh, that is one way we exercise hope. And within that worship service, we practice the sacraments. We practice baptism of our children, saying that these kids uh, will be reared in that new reality, right? That hope that we have, that hope of Isaiah chapter 9, where it says, um, you've multiplied our joy. You've broken the burden of the oppressor, right? The, the boots for tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood shall be used as fuel for fire right there's a new world and and then we come to god's table and we partake of the bread and of the juice and we proclaim that christ uh, is coming and all this will be a reality so this is the way the church shows hope and practices hope is in our worship uh, we stand against the world in this way all right so then that leads us to the exploring the historical setting there's a lot going on here. Last week, we talked about Amos. Amos was a prophet to the northern kingdom. Isaiah this week is a prophet to the southern kingdom. Last week, we talked about how the northern kingdom had it pretty good. Everything was great. And so what you ended up having was people who had um, you know, prostituted themselves out to other gods, to material gain, to power and influence and all these things, and they forgot the Lord. And so... Uh, that was the Northern Kingdom. It kind of starts, I would want to bring bring up uh, actually Hosea. Hosea was a little bit before Amos, 
and he was the prophet to the northern kingdom who who god used to to try to warn the israelites of the northern kingdom to turn from their ways uh, god commanded hosea to marry a prostitute so he did and of course that prostitute ran around on on him and so he he brought the prostitute back to himself and this was a, almost like a children's object lesson to the nation of israel saying you're off course i'm faithful get back to me they didn't so then we send amos and amos says you know y'all are terrible y'all need to get back to god if not danger is coming danger is coming and of course they don't and so the context then of what's happening in our, our, our isaiah passage is that <clears throat> while in amos's day there was um, you know it was good times right there's a lot of wealth there was a lot of goodness um, people's hearts were far from god the reason why they were able to have such wealth and, and such uh, privilege, if you will, is because the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Egyptians were on an economic, economic downturn and their power wasn't quite as great. They couldn't put pressure on, on the northern kingdom of Israel or on Israel or Judah, for that matter. So they expanded. Um, but then soon the Assyrians became strong again. And so the Assyrians then made the Israelites the vassal state. They took over. And uh, they carted off uh, the Israelites to the northern kingdom. And you've heard the phrase, probably the 10 lost tribes of Israel. This is that they were pushed out of Israel. Then what happens? And this is where we get to our text for today. Uh, the Assyrians and the Israelites decide that they're going to come up against King Ahaz and they're going to try to take uh, Judah. They're going to try to try to take Jerusalem. And so he starts getting a little bit nervous. Right. King Ahaz does. And so, in, and then you'll, this is the uh, context for Isaiah 7. You're going to hear this coming up in, in, uh, in Advent. But anyway, Ahaz is trying to figure out who, what other nations can he rely on Egypt? Can he rely on Babylon? Can he rely on somebody else to come help him while the Assyrians and the Israelites are coming to, against him? Uh, so anyway. Isaiah goes to Ahaz, says, hey, don't worry about it. Israel and Assyria, they're going to be burned out, so don't worry about it. Uh, and so Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as the heavens. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to uh, weary mortals that you weary God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a son. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on your ancestral house. Such days have not come since that day that Ephraim departed from Judah. Uh, so anyway, now we get to something else. Isaiah comes to the king and says, look, don't worry about these folks. God's going to take care of it. Here's a sign. This virgin shall be with child. Now, in, in the Old Testament, you'll find that prophecy has a double fulfillment. When, when a prophet speaks forth a prophecy, something like Isaiah does here, this virgin shall be with child. Uh, 
He's speaking of something immediate, but then also something that happens in Jesus Christ or ultimately at the consummation of Christ. So a lot of Jewish scholars and a lot of people would say that uh, that Isaiah is referencing Hezekiah. So the prophecy is that he points to some young lady in uh, It could be the king's wife, virgin. This translated virgin simply could mean someone who hasn't had a child yet. Anyway, um, so a lot of Jewish scholars would say that the immediate fulfillment of this prophecy is Hezekiah. And you know how the story goes. The Assyrians and the Israelites were not successful. They had to leave uh, and they couldn't capture Judah. And then Hezekiah comes in and there's a revival under Hezekiah. He does make a mistake or so, but anyway, uh, eventually uh, Judah falls, but it's not to the Assyrians, it's to the Babylonians. Uh, God was right when he warned uh, King, uh, King Ahaz, don't worry about the Assyrians, they're going to be gone. So those were the prophecies. Now then, our text, Isaiah chapter 9, when we read, for to us a child has been born, to us a son is given, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace. For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time onward forevermore. The zeal of the Lord host will do this. Again, Jewish scholars would say that this is Hezekiah. They did experience somewhat of a revival. Um, and it goes bad there at the very end, but that's where the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah chapter seven or Isaiah chapter nine is in Jesus Christ, of course. So real quickly, let me read that discussion question. Uh, it's on page, um, 71. Discuss how the church can act as a prophet to the world. What is the world's response? Can you give examples? I'll just say the church acts as a prophet to the world when we uphold um, God's faithfulness or we uphold God's standards and we call people to repentance when they're away from the standards. Uh, the very sad thing about this is, is that for hundreds of years, God was warning the, the northern kingdom, the Israelites, hey, get right, get right, get right. If you don't get right, you're going to fall. And of course, they didn't. And so then carries on in Isaiah. They're warning, Isaiah's warning, the prophets are warning in, in the southern kingdom, get right, get right, because if you don't, God's going to allow really bad things to happen. The church then, this is not, might not be popular, I don't know, the church then calls people to repentance. It gives warning, it shows faithfulness, what does it look like to be faithful, and then it, it asks a response from sinful people to become saints uh, by following God's will and, and, and so on and so forth. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make when, like I see Facebook memes about how, like, you know, you, you're not supposed to judge people. That's not in scripture. Like if you weren't judged by your parents or if you weren't judged by God or the church or whatever, you'd still be wallowing around in sin or whatnot, even more so than we are now. When Jesus says, do not judge, uh, unless you be judged for in the same manner you judge it will be judged according to you you can judge someone with love like it might be your greatest desire i think about people in addiction um you welcome them in but you don't want to see them 
um, kill themselves through an addiction, you do have to push or at least say, Hey, repent and, and then help out. And out of love, then that's how God judged the Israelites on a love is how God judged the Southern kingdom. It's out of love that Jesus Christ judges us and calls us to repentance and submission. It's out of love. And there's a difference between judging someone in anger or falsely and love and with grace, but judgment is, is highly important. And in the church, by virtue of being the, the body of Christ should have some insight on, on how to live faithfully uh, before God. And when it's not happening, the church then like John the Baptist calls out wickedness, truth to power, whatever you want to call it. Um, all right. So that then leads us to the digging deeper section. Um, so what uh, Derek has here is talks about the theme of, of light amid the darkness. And again, the world is full of darkness, heavens knows. Um, and this is also where uh, we can think like, um, think about what it means then to put hope in certain things. So like in this day and age of Isaiah's time or Amos's time, uh, people were seeking light in darkness. So like uh, in Israel, they were adhering and seeking light in dead religious rituals or in the law. They were checking off boxes, but their hearts were far from God. And that's not light. That was just darkness. Um, also, in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, uh, the kings were seeking uh, light uh, in political powers. They were jockeying to make sure that somebody could help them if somebody else came across. And that's simply not light. That's that's partnering with hopefully your 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 darkness will be um, supported by bigger darkness. We saw the darkness of idolatry where people ran around and tried to find light or meaning in other gods and and in wealth and activities of the flesh and so on and so forth. They sought comfort in the powers of other nations. These are all things that people run toward, but ultimately they're dark. And so God calls you out and says, don't put, don't think that this is light. This isn't light. This is darkness. I have the light. Follow me is what God is trying to say. And so then the season coming up of Advent is a chance for us to reorient ourselves away from the world and into the truth of God, away from the darkness of the world, into the light of God is what we're trying to do there. The discussion question is on page 72. That helps us. Well, let me read this because I think on page 72, I'm really just going to read that first half. At Jesus's birth that night in Bethlehem. The light of a star led the wise men and shepherds to his presence. In the darkness that pervaded the lives of sinners, tax collectors, diseased, and demon-possessed, Jesus showed forth the glory and light of God and led them into fullness of life. This fullness of life defined, uh, redefined who these individuals were. This fullness of life turned those very sinners into saints. The rejected and despised tax collectors became beloved children of God. Those who were pained by the onslaught of disease and physical disability became useful to the world around them. Those who were shackled by the chains of demons were loose to live freely and wholly again. And this is what I was talking about. There's a darkness, and sometimes we run toward the darkness, but God offers a different light, different hope. Don't hope in this other stuff. Hope in God. 
And then I did want to read the Confession of Faith, uh, 6.06 and 6.07. When we run to the light, we are fundamentally changed. So in 6.06, it says believers are saved by grace through faith, which produces the desire to do good works for which God creates persons in Jesus Christ. And 6.07 says this, good works are done in thankful response to the gift of God's grace. God graciously accepts the works of believers despite their many weaknesses and imperfect motives. Uh, that's faith, right? That's hope. And our discussion question is, when Jesus encountered people in the dark, he led them into the light. How can we as a church continue in the ministry to the world, this ministry uh, to the world? What are the darknesses in your community that you as a church can shine light of Christ into? How can you shine this light? Um, I think it's the same answer as the one before. Uh, we're a worshiping community. Within that worshiping community, when we're brought to the light, we bring others to the light. We shed light. Um, again, there's not a single church, I don't think, that has some dysfunction. And in grace and love, you minister to that dysfunction in communities where you see helpless, homeless, the oppressed, people who can't find jobs, people who have jobs but simply can't survive. We help to aid those situations in the name of Jesus Christ. So that's pretty, that's pretty good, pretty important there. Um, so then that leads us then to our learning from the scripture section, uh, which Derek brings up the fact that we're entering into the Advent season and that Advent is a time of preparation and expectation of, of Jesus Christ coming into the world. And so um, Jesus identifies himself as the light of the world, but it doesn't stop there. We then as the church reflect that light to the world. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, uh, Jesus says to the disciples and to the crowd around him, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one after lighting a lamp puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father in heaven. That is really super important, right? Like, we become Christians not simply for our own benefit, just because we get saved or whatnot. We are saved. We're sent. We're saved. We're sent. And, and we shed light. We, we become the hands and feet of Christ. We become the temple of God in, in so many ways. So I did want to read our Confession of Faith 5.30 and 5.31 uh, that sheds light on how we are to be light. So 5.30 says, in carrying out the apostolic commission, the covenant community has encountered and continues to encounter people who belong to religions who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. While respecting persons who adhere to other religions, Christians are responsible to share the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ with them. And then 5.31, the covenant community is responsible to give witness to the mighty acts of God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ where and when this witness is lacking, God is not without a witness. Therefore, it does not belong to the covenant community to judge where and in what manner God acts savingly through Jesus Christ. I bring that up simply to say that as children of God, we're servants of God, we're apostles of God, we're the light of God, and we work uh, with that in our mind. We, we can't stay on the sideline. We proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that's a light that can lead people to the right ways. And then finally, the applying the scripture section. Um, I'll just do a couple of these questions. Um, one was 
The first one is who led you to Christ and what ways did they demonstrate the faithfulness of God to you? Um, my journey to Christ was, was a long journey in the sense of my parents certainly had, had an effect on it. I had one particular friend that was very much a part of my uh, journey. Um, there were churches uh, who did little events and activities that I think at least kept me thinking about spirituality. But ultimately then uh, Pastor Maury Norman, Easter sunrise service, 1999, 98, whenever it was, um, was faithful in preaching the gospel. And, and for whatever reason, still can't understand it. It, it drew me in. And then number two, I think is a good question just to see how we're doing evangelism. How have you led, who have you led to Christ and what ways do you demonstrate the faithfulness of God? Starts with our families, right? That's probably the easiest way to evangelize is we evangelize with our families. And one way that we do that is that our lives are faithful to God. When your children look at you and they see a servant of God, that will influence them quite a bit as they grow older. Um, pray for them so on and so forth, then your people you work with in your community, your friends and family. I mean, um, I've done, I guess evangelism is something that's not, I mean, I'm not an evangelist, but over the years, there's been people who have um, cultivated a relationship with Christ because of my ministry or my friendship or so on and so forth. But um, that's, that's how that works. Number three, darkness is frightening, yet we often find comfort in darkness because we can hide. What things do you hope to keep hidden in the dark? Why do we tend to hide? Well, you're not getting confessions from me because, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, in one sense, we're afraid of darkness because it exposes us. And so if we can keep hidden all the evil things within us, then we feel better about ourselves. So we don't like darkness, but we sure don't want people to see inside of us. Uh, and I think that's where coming to Christ helps us become more transparent. Um, it helps us to trust in the forgiveness that we have, but it also helps us to overcome those sins, which we still hide in the darkness. Um, and then for this Advent season, how can you all better prepare yourselves for the mission of Christ? I think one of the things that the church doesn't do well is to use the church calendar as a way of spiritual progress or spiritual growth. So if your church isn't used to really thinking about Advent, Take some time, learn about what Advent is, find you an Advent devotional or Bible study, pick some things out that you can do during the Advent season. You know, some of the big ones are working in soup kitchens or giving from angel tree type things, but try to anchor it purposefully in, in a spiritual growth type thing. All right, that's it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And may you preach and teach with grace and, and power this week. And we'll see you next week with a big announcement and a special guest.